0: The sermon text is from Mark chapter 1, verse 40, through chapter 2, verse 12. You can find it on page 489 in the paperback Bibles. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for proof to them. But he went out and began talking. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, Why did this man speak like that? And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, we've been um, moving through the book of Mark uh, for the last few weeks, and we're going to continue through that uh, through Easter. Um, And one of the things that I really enjoy about um, moving at a patient pace through a book like this um, is the way that we get to really see the themes braid together um, and build. Um, And uh, there are a couple of themes that we are uh, watching uh, build and and unfold uh, in this passage. Things that have been, uh, seeds that have uh, already been planted in the first chapter, um, uh, now coming, already beginning to come to fruition in chapter two. Um, We have been talking about uh, Jesus as the rightful king, right, in in chapter 1, verse 18, right, he says, uh, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Um, And we talk about uh, how a gospel, uh, before Jesus came around and before there were gospels about Jesus, um, if someone was talking about a gospel uh, in the Greek language, they were talking about an announcement of of a military victory. It had military overtones. It had political overtones. Uh, it was about, a, it was about uh, your king or your general of, uh, representing your city uh, had won a victory. It was the good news from the front. Um, and so when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, uh, what these people would be hearing is, uh, this is like a military conquest getting ready to happen. Um, We've been talking about, in light of that, uh, Jesus having authority. And in fact, um, the way that we use the word kingdom in English, it's worth uh, noting, is a little different than the way they use it in the Bible. Um, if I asked you, what, what's a kingdom? Um, you would probably uh, say, well, it's, it's the country that a king rules. Or maybe you might say, in, you know, by implication, it's the people over whom a king rules. Um, right. The United Kingdom is, you know, one of the last remaining kingdoms on earth, but the United Kingdom is the country of Great Britain. Um, but the way that the Bible tends to, it, it uses it that way, but the primary way that the word Bible, the, the, uh, the Bible uses the word kingdom is the actual authority and right that a monarch would have to rule. Uh, so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he doesn't mean that a place is coming or that a, a place where God rules is at hand. He means that the authority of God to rule is about to be manifested. It's about to be shown. Um, we see it used this way in one of Jesus' parables much later in one of the other gospels. He says – he tells this parable about a man who went to a far country to receive a kingdom and come back. Right? He didn't go to receive geography. He went to receive the authority to rule the place where he was coming back to. Um, so when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand, the authority of God to rule as king over all the earth is at hand. Um, now, this is a thing that is, uh, rings strange to our ears. I think it's difficult for us, living in a democratic republic, to understand uh, the emotional weight of, that that announcement would have to an ancient Israelite. Jesus does a strange thing here. He's he's in Capernaum. It says that uh, it was reported that he was at home. Um, That really could mean that it's his own house. Um, He was from Nazareth, but Capernaum was nearby. He was a tradesman. He was a craftsman. Um, It could very well be that he uh, was working in Capernaum, and while he was there, he had a house, and this is his own home. Uh, That they're in here, and they bring this paralyzed man to him. It says that he's preaching the word to them. And by the way, remember that what that means is he is preaching the announcement to them that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the word. Uh, He's talking to them about the kingdom of God, God's right and power to rule. And they bring him this paralyzed man. Last passage, we see him heal a man who had a skin disease. We've been seeing his, we've been already hearing stories about him healing other people. So presumably they are bringing this man to him because they are hoping for him to heal the man. Um, but he does a strange thing, doesn't he? Uh, he doesn't start by healing the man. He says to the man, "Your sins are forgiven." Um, I think as a reader that should surprise us, right we should be expecting him to say to the man, I would like to heal you, or what would you like me to do for you, or what can I do for you, or how, how can I help you? And the man would say, would you please heal me? And he would say, yes, I would be happy, like, like we see in all of these uh, healing stories. Um, but he starts, like, he, he, he skips all of that and just says to the man, your sins are forgiven, and that's weird. Um, now, you know, a, a lot of comment on this, we would say, well, he knows that what the man really needs is forgiveness. Okay, obviously. Um, but didn't the man with leprosy need forgiveness too? Um, didn't Peter's mother-in-law that we read about last week, didn't she need forgiveness too? He's going to heal other people. Don't they need forgiveness too? Why this guy does he start with, your sins are forgiven? That's a question that I think we want to press on today uh, to see what Jesus is up to. And if we can press on that, if we can answer that question, and if we can really connect with what it would mean to hear the announcement that the kingdom of God was at hand. um, There's a few things that we're going to learn. We're going to learn about the need for forgiveness and what that means and why there is such a need for forgiveness. We're going to learn about Jesus' authority for forgiveness. We're going to learn about the cost of forgiveness. And we're going to learn about the proof of forgiveness. So the need for forgiveness, and I think really, in order to understand the need for forgiveness, this is where uh, we do need to to understand what it would have felt like to hear the announcement to a a Hebrew, an Israelite, living under Roman occupation in in ancient Palestine. Uh, What would it have felt like to hear someone start to say, the kingdom of God is at hand? Okay. Uh, You got to try to imagine what it would feel like to be under an occupier, to be living in an occupied, uh, oppressed, enslaved land, to be a member of an oppressed, enslaved people. I think given our history, some of us may connect with that more readily than, than others of us. Um, but maybe for all of us, uh, a way that we can... Uh, Uh, approach this question, you can tell I've been watching Man in a High Castle, okay? Um, What if, let's imagine, you know, imagine it out with me. What would it have been like? What would it be like today in 2017 if the Germans had won World War II and had conquered North America, right? And what if the authority of the Third Reich was actually in power in what used to be the United States of America. What would our lives be like now? Okay, Um, so, you know, let's imagine that you are 22 years old. You were born in 1995. Your parents were born in 1970. Your grandparents were born in 1945. Three generations of your family now have been born and grown up and come of age under Nazi occupation. What would your life be like? Uh, Now realize that, you know, remember that what the Nazis did, their propaganda, when they conquered uh, Austria and Czechoslovakia, and even when they were trying to pull it off when they conquered Poland, what they always tried to do was stylize themselves as realizing the dreams of the people that they were conquering. Austria is, is really part of the fatherland, and, and this, is, this is what Austrians really want. They want the German military to come and, and set them free. And the Czechs, they do too. We're going to come and we're going we're to uh, uh, put our wing over them. Uh, we're going to bring uh, the, the beauty of the Reich to Czechoslovakia. And Czechoslovakia is really, really happy about this. Um, so if they had conquered America, they would have done the same thing here. Uh, they would surely have tried that, right? So, man, this is going to get a little uncomfortable, but you can imagine the things that they would latch onto from American history to try to say that they were really realizing the American dream, that that's what they were here to do. So they would talk, they would, you know, you can imagine they would say things like, well, look, America, this is, you know, what the Nazis might have said if they had conquered America. America has always had... uh, good instincts about race and racial purity. But weakness has held us back. Look, we always knew as a people that Africans should be slaves to white people, uh, but weakness held us back. Uh, We always knew that Jews should be second-class citizens, but weakness has held us back. Um, America always had high ideals about rewarding innovation and technological achievement, but selfishness and greed held them back. But now the Reich is going to put selfishness and greed under the thumb of of the government so that innovation can really thrive. Um, They might say the Reich has helped America become what the founding fathers always dreamed of. Can you imagine if that's the rhetoric that you grew up learning in school? Uh, that they focused on things like you know, John Thomas Jefferson's statements about miscegenation. Thomas Jefferson saying things like, in general, there, that's black people's, in general, their existence appears to participate more in sensation than reflection. Jefferson actually said that black people eventually should be removed beyond the reach of mixture. Beyond the reach of mixture. You know, and... You know, and you can imagine that the that the Reich would uh, instead, uh, you know, would ignore those things instead of the things that Jefferson said, like all men are created equal. The things that we like to remember, all men are created equal, that Jefferson said. Um, I mean, and they would certainly want Americans to help run the government here. They would, uh, like, it wouldn't have been hard to find racists in 1945 to help run the Nazi regime in America. So there would have been sympathizers and collaborators who, from our point of view, betrayed America uh, in order to serve Germany. And this would be what you grew up under. This would be what your grandparents grew up under. But then imagine that at the same time, secretly, your parents and grandparents taught you those other parts of American history, the parts that we like to remember, the parts that we like to think of as our ideals. I mean, because, like, look, let's be honest, right? America's a human institution, so there is, like any human institution, like any human being, this mixture of high ideal and hope and righteousness, civil righteousness, we call it, um, mixed with, with sin. And um, So what if your parents, you know, at the same time that you're, you're growing up this way, had taught you, about the Constitution, about principles like the consent of the governed, statements like we, the people, established the Constitution. Um, things like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, talking about four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this, nation, on this soil a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. In secret, your parents are teaching you about this. They would teach you about what democracy was. What if they secretly taught you that somewhere out there, the rightful government of the United States was still alive, that there was a rump Congress, that there were still elections in exile, that there was a president in exile, that there was a military in exile, and someday they were going to gather strength and come back and set us all free and reestablish the authority of the Constitution and freedom. You know, and and give me liberty or give me death, and I, you know, only regret that I have but one life to live for my country, and all of the things that we now like to think of as our uh, as the good things about American history. And what if that was what you grew up believing? Someday freedom would return. Someday the rightful law of the land would be reestablished. Can you imagine the? The longing that you would feel for that. The way that your young imagination as you were growing up would think about it. Someday, someday Germany's not going to rule here anymore. Someday there won't be gas chambers anymore. Someday our sick relatives won't have to be put down anymore. Someday this country will become a a thriving, diverse place again. Imagine the pain of that hope. Can you you feel it? Because that's how it would have felt to be an Israelite living under Roman rule. There's this puppet king, Herod, who's supposedly a Jew, uh, but is a a traitor. Uh, uh, There's collaboration from your supposed leaders. The Sanhedrin are, are always working with the Roman occupier, betraying their people. There's an oppressive governor. and There's hope. Someday, 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 the kingdom of God is going to return. Someday, the Messiah is going to come. Someday, the Son of Man will be given authority and dominion and a kingdom that will never end. And then, right, you start to hear it. Somebody starts to spread the word that the kingdom is at hand. The, cost of the authority of the Constitution is at hand. The president and the military, the army are in Toronto. The Navy is in San Francisco Bay. The Marines are in Tijuana, Mexico. The invasion's about to happen. We're about to be set free. Can you imagine how that would start to stir your spirit? The, the Constitution's at hand. The rightful rule, the rightful law of the United States is at hand. And finally, someone's gonna set us free. Finally, someone is gonna deal with the collaborators and the traitors who have betrayed us all someone is going to deal with the treason against the constitution that has been going on for generations now and what are you going to do are you going to join that fight can you imagine how you where 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 do i go how do i get involved where you know uh, who are the people i can connect with can we bomb some munitions dumps can we uh, commit acts of uh, you know of guerrilla warfare while they're on their way here to make it easy, the conquest easier. What can we do? Can I join the fight? Because this is what Jesus is inviting us to do. When he says, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel, he is issuing this clarion call for the loyalists to come and join the fight and the resistance against the oppressors. That's what is ringing in the ears of these Israelites. Will you join the resistance? Repent and believe the gospel. Believe it's true. The president really is in Toronto. The military really is in Tijuana. The Navy really is off the coast. It's really happening. Believe the gospel. Turn away from the Nazi regime. Repent and join. Believe it. Jesus' kingdom and authority are a full frontal assault. On every oppressor, every violent actor, every other king, every other power, and every collaborator with injustice. Jesus is assaulting it by announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. And do you want to join? Do you believe it? This is what the people are hearing him say. And then, and then, you remember a horrifying fact a gut punch. As you recall, that when you got out of high school, the only job that was available to you, the job that you were assigned to do, because this is the kind of government we have, um, was in a factory uh, that made military equipment for the Nazis. And you have been paying taxes all of your adult life to Berlin and in your job, in order to advance. You have done your best. You have uh, sought to make the the factory more efficient. Uh, You have uh, informed on people who were not performing well because of the reward that was available. And you recall that you are one of the collaborators. But it it was all that I could do. It's what I had to do to survive but you're one of the collaborators. And if the rightful law of the United States is reestablished, you are guilty of high treason. And now what are you going to do? Every beat of your heart wants to run to join the fight. And every other beat of your heart trembles in fear of what will be coming to you when the rightful rule is established. What do you do? Will you join the resistance against the Reich? Will you run to the new and rightful president? Will you fight to restore the Constitution? Or will you try to hide? Or worse, will you fight for the Reich? You've been hoping and praying for this moment your entire life, but now it terrifies you. I mean, dare I say it, you might find yourself feeling paralyzed. What are you going to do? You can't do either. You're stuck. You're paralyzed. What could possibly set you free from that paralysis so that you could do the thing that you really want, which is to join? You need to know that the new authority is the authority to forgive your treason? You need to know that the king is able and willing to forgive. I, I know that you, you may be thinking, like, well, look, I get that you're making an analogy, um, but how am I a collaborator with evil? Like, you might, I, I, like, you're having trouble buying that, that, like, your life is, you know, is is similar to being a collaborator with the Nazi Reich? Um, Okay, sit with that question. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. Um, But first we need to talk about what it means for Jesus to have the authority to forgive sins. Um, And that's why we we read from Daniel 7 today. If you were with us in the fall, um, I'm not, you know, I can't thoroughly... Uh, go into everything that's in Daniel seven. Go back and listen to the sermon from from the fall. It's on our website if you weren't here. Um, but Daniel is having a vision, a dream, and he sees the Ancient of Days, God. Uh, and in verse ten, there in chapter seven, right, is all this ten the people ten thousand times ten thousand, and it says the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Um, right, that's. Ooh little chilling uh, that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The books were opened. Everything that you've ever done is about to be laid bare. And then uh, in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented to him dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. So this is a threat of judgment. Right? When the Constitution is restored, the Supreme Court is going to sit in righteous judgment. What if that was the promise you grew up hearing, and you're hoping for it? right? It feels good if you think that you're one of the good guys, but if you're a collaborator, it's terrifying. And the Son of Man, God himself is sitting in judgment, but he gives that authority to the Son of Man. And so when Jesus starts to identify himself as the Son of Man, he is identifying himself as the one who is sitting in court in judgment as the kingdom of God is established. And so the reversal of that expectation is that when a guilty party is brought before him, instead of executing judgment on the man, Tells him his the first words out of his mouth are your sins are forgiven. The dominion and the glory and the kingdom and the everlasting power that the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man, gives to Jesus Himself, instead of being the authority to kill everybody, He, he uses that authority to forgive sins. Once you know that the king was empowered to forgive treason, maybe now you wouldn't be so afraid. Maybe now your paralysis might start to eke away. Um, But how can he have this authority? How can Jesus claim to have the authority to forgive this man? And this is where we have to talk about the cost of forgiveness. Um, In verse 7, the people standing around are astonished, right? And they say, Who, what is this, what is this guy talking about? Who can forgive sins except for God alone? Now, you might be saying, and what business does even God have to forgive sins? Because listen, sins have victims. Right? What if this man uh, had been a thief? And people he had stolen from are in the crowd. And Jesus says, I forgive you. And he's like, well, wait a minute. No, no, you don't get to forgive him. He owes me money. I get to forgive him, and I don't want to. I want him to pay me back, please. Uh, Or what if uh, he had been an adulterer, and his wife, whom he had betrayed, was in the crowd. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. Wait a minute. You don't get to forgive him. He sinned against me, not you. What if he had been, what if he'd been a rapist and his victim was in the crowd? What if he'd been a liar and the people that he'd lied to were in the crowd? What if he'd had a, a, a raging bad temper and, and uh, you know, lashed out and emotionally abused his children and they're in the crowd and he's, Jesus is telling the man, you're forgiven. Hey, man. Uh, I would rather you didn't do that. Who who are you? Who are you? Who are you to forgive sins that were done to me? Like, you had better be God to claim something like that. Forgiveness isn't free. I mean, have you ever forgiven someone? Um, And look, overlooking a sin is not the same as forgiving. Overlooking is not the same as forgiving. Look, last night... Um, Patrick and I were driving back from Presbytery and we went to get Chinese food and I was driving and it was parallel parking I wasn't used to the size of his car which is smaller than mine but somehow I couldn't see properly and I nudged the car behind me as I was parallel parking and the guy is like in the car Uh, and he gets out and we look and there doesn't appear to be any damage and he's like no problem can I say that was gracious of him, and I'm glad that that's the way it played out, and thank you, Lord. <laughs> but that's not forgiveness. right? That's not forgiveness. That's, it, that's, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter isn't forgiveness. Apathy, not caring, isn't forgiveness. Forgiveness would be if I had smashed his bumper and cracked it to pieces, and he says, you know what? I'm just going to pay for it. That's forgiveness. Right? That cost him. Forgiveness isn't free. Forgiveness costs. Uh, real forgiveness is painful. When someone does something against you and you, say, and you tell yourself, it doesn't matter, I'm above that, that's not forgiving. Forgiving is, this really, really hurts and I want this person to suffer for what they have done. I want them to know how badly they have hurt me. I want them to feel the pain of it. That that's the way that you feel, but then you say, but I'm never going to go after it. I'm never going to tell them. Because what I really want is for them to not know. What I really want is for them to have peace. What I really want is for them to be free of it. I don't want to punish them. That's forgiveness, and that is painful to do. It feels like death. It feels like dying inside when you have to do that. You're losing something. Now, if you have to genuinely wish for the person not to suffer for what they've done in order to really forgive, you have to bear it, right? You have to bear it instead of them. So by claiming to forgive this man, Jesus is identifying himself with the victims of his sins. And it's not the first time that Jesus... Well, it is. Maybe it's the first time. But it's not the last time. It's not the only time that Jesus does this. You remember a very famous speech of his uh, near the end of one of the other Gospels where he says... You know, in the last day, in the final judgment, Jesus will say, um, You know, you have, I was in prison and you visited me, and I was thirsty and you gave me a drink, and I was hungry and you fed me. And people will say, When did we do this to you? And he will say, Whenever you did it to the least person, you were doing it to me. And then he will say to other people, I was in prison and you didn't visit me, and I was poor and you didn't help me, and I was hungry and you didn't feed me, and I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything, and I was cold and naked and you didn't give me clothes. And when did we do this to you, Lord? Whenever you did it to the least person you were doing it to me. Jesus is saying that when, the, the, by, for, by claiming the authority to forgive this guy, one of the things that he is claiming is that all of the sins that were done by him were really done to Jesus himself. That Jesus is the real victim. That God himself bears the pain of those, uh, of those sins more even than you do. He feels it more than you do. And Jesus is the physical embodiment of God. So to be the physical embodiment of God, Jesus has to physically embody the cost of forgiveness. God must suffer to forgive your sins. That's one of the remarkable things in this passage to me. The way that they bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. uh, The level of detail is somewhat surprising. Um, In Mark particularly, if you've read Mark through before, I recommend you do it. It's fast. You can read Mark through in one sitting. Um, Mark does not mess around. He doesn't put in things that don't need to be there. He's got points that he wants to make, and he tells you what you need to know to get the point. So why does he bother taking the time to talk about that there were four people carrying this man, that they had to climb up on the roof and remove the roof from the house? So the, in the Greek, it literally says that they unroofed the roof. You know, when they're done with that, got so what, look at this visually. Here's Jesus standing in his house. The roo- roof is removed. So it's now just four walls and nothing above, which is like a courtyard. Um, and here, four people come carrying this man and set him in front of Jesus in the center of this newly made courtyard that is Jesus' house. Visually, it's like the temple is being recreated here. right? The temple in Jerusalem, where they would offer sacrifices for atonement, for sin, where they would offer burnt offerings on this altar, uh, is a, a courtyard that's the house of God. And that altar was designed, and you can read about this in Exodus 38, and the Greek terms are very similar. It says in Mark that, that there were four men. It says that there were he was being carried by four, is how it literally reads. And then the Greek translation of Exodus 38, it says that, that the altar, where the burnt offerings were, uh, had four carrying rings, on each, you know, one on each corner, for the priests to carry. it. So these four men, carrying this altar, putting it in front of Jesus, are like priests, bringing their friend before him. And they put him in the position that, a, that an offering, that a sacrifice would be. And by rights, the man should be destroyed. Right? This is a, an altar of burnt offering. Uh, I feel like Mark is recognizing what uh, what is visually happening here. You know, Mark was uh, um, probably working with uh, the Apostle Peter. And Peter, including these details as he talks to Mark, is recognizing that it's the temple is being recreated and that this man is being offered before Jesus. And Jesus pardons the sacrifice and tells him to get up and walk away. He can only do that Because he knows that there has to be a sacrifice. Something has to get back on that altar. God himself is going to bear the cost of forgiveness. Jesus knows that at the end of his ministry, he himself is going to be that sacrifice. That he, God in the flesh, is going to physically bear the cost of forgiveness. By forgiving the man, he's going to have to climb on the altar himself he has to absorb the cost. And so finally, and very quickly, the proof of forgiveness. Jesus heals the man, and, he, and it says that he heals the man so that we may know that he has the authority to forgive. He heals so that we will know that he has the authority to forgive. And this is very important about Jesus' miracles, by the way that they are always, at worst, almost always, there to confirm his authority, to confirm his teaching. He is, remember, he's, he started this by, he was talking to them about the kingdom of God. He was preaching the word to them. And so the healing of this man is to confirm that he, and to prove that he has the authority to do what he said he can do. But he refers to himself here Uh, he refers to himself, or maybe Mark is the one referring to him this way, might not be in quotation, as the son of man. And this is the first time that any gospel uses that phrase to describe Jesus. Mark doesn't use this phrase again until the end of chapter 8 and then chapter 9. For most of Jesus' ministry, we don't hear about him being the son of man. And then when he does start to talk about it, it's only in private to his disciples. Um, is what it says in Mark eight thirty one. The next time that this phrase is used in Mark eight thirty one, uh, it says Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. And then in Mark nine, Jesus says to them, "Don't tell anyone." Mark 9.9, nine, "Don't tell anyone what you've seen until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead." Jesus is aware that his authority to forgive sins and his identity as the Son of Man, who is receiving dominion from God himself, uh, is not going to be comprehensible to people until after he's been raised from the dead. Here in this story, Jesus heals this man to prove his uh, authority to forgive sins. But he knows that no one is really going to be able to thoroughly buy it until after he's been raised from the dead. Um, So the proof, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And if you're here wondering whether this is something that you can trust, does Jesus, re- is he really this king? Is, he- is the kingdom of God really at hand? Has it really been established on the earth? Uh, you want to know that that's true. If you, if you doubt it, if you're skeptical about it, good on you. Be skeptical about it. Here's what to investigate. Did Jesus of Nazareth come back from the dead or not? Um, and I would challenge you to do that. I'd be happy to have conversations about you and point you to resources, um, because I think what you'll find is that he did, that history shows that it's true, that the authority of the Son of Man to forgive sins is proven by his coming back from the dead, and the kingdom of God is established. And that fact can set you and me free from our paralysis. It can set us free to join his movement, to follow him without fear because we know that he has the authority to forgive sins.